Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13 and 24 through 27. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory." And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Thank you. You guys can be seated. Quite a Thanksgiving text, right? Praise God. Chris asked me to preach on Mark 13 a couple of weeks ago, and so I grabbed my first commentary. I opened it up, and the first thing it says is, be warned, Mark 13 is the most difficult chapter in all of the New Testament. So I grabbed my pen and paper and I made my first note, Chris Pablitti is a jerk. <laughs> uh, it is a weird text. There's a bit of prophecy and a lot is going on. Uh, but by God's grace, we'll, we'll, we'll find in here um, some beautiful truths and some promises. And ultimately, if I can summarize this morning's sermon into one sentence, it would be this, that God's kingdom uh, is more beautiful, more pure, and it's better for us than any kingdom of men, than any kingdom could ever promise us. So let's recap a little bit about how we got into Mark 13. Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple. Uh, he has spent the last couple of days in what we would call public ministry. He's been preaching and debating with the religious leaders uh, in the temple. And now Mark 13 is sort of this, this bridge in the book of Mark. It's a transition. We're moving from Jesus's public ministry into Passion Week. Uh, Jesus, very quickly after Mark 13, is about to be crucified. So Mark 13 acts as a sort of a bridge, a pause between his public ministry and the cross. Uh, and, and what he's doing ultimately here, this is almost like 
Much like the, the Last Supper, this is almost his farewell conversation. He's preparing his closest friends for what's about to come. So the first thing that he does is that he prophesizes the destruction of the temple. And to truly appreciate the gravity of this claim, uh, we have to understand the role the temple plays in Jerusalem. Remember that King David founded Jerusalem, and his son Solomon built the first temple. Uh, and this temple, this place, was going to be the resting place of God, where his presence would be. Now remember back in Genesis, as God creates, uh, he creates mankind uh, in a world where he rests as well. Heaven is earth, and earth is heaven. But this story in Genesis tells us that at some point in time, uh, sin enters the world and God removes himself, his presence, from the world. So the temple is the one place in the world where these two worlds of heaven and earth collide. It's a little sliver of heaven on earth. It's God's resting place. Uh, the, the Israelites loved the temple. It was their their sign of hope that God's promises still reign true, that ultimately he would come back and he would vindicate them. Now, this temple has a long and tattered history. Uh, it's built first by Solomon, and then the Babylonians destroy it. After the Babylonians destroy it, Persia takes over, and they allow Israel to come back and rebuild the temple, and now we are in the second temple. But Rome takes over, and now Herod is controlling the temple. So what we have here is a bit of a, a, a political dilemma and a, a religious dilemma because the temple to Herod is a representation of political power. It's his way of moving up his corporate ladder. If he rules Jerusalem well, he hopes that maybe the next kingdom he is assigned will be a bigger and better kingdom. And the Pharisees are trying to use this temple to rule over the people as well, uh, but not through political power, rather through religious power and religious authority. Now, this temple would have been by far the most elaborate and beautiful building you would have ever seen if you were in Jerusalem. Most, most places have a, a city with a small temple in it, but this temple was the city. Jerusalem was a temple with a small city around it. Uh, so to, for Jesus to say that this thing is coming down, that it's going to be destroyed, he is pulling at the heartstrings of all of the religious and political power and authority. And it catches his disciples, his friends, off guard a little bit. Now, it's important to realize that we don't really have a building in our day that quite represents what the temple represented to the people in Jerusalem. But anthropologists say that buildings still play an important role uh, in our culture. They would argue that buildings are a manifestation or a representation of what the culture values most. So let's take Paris, for example. Uh, they recognize, they, they see themselves as the epicenter of art and culture. And because of that, they have, and Kelly and I have been arguing over how to pronunciate this, the Louvre. I said it right. They have the Louvre. New York City 
sees themselves as the epicenter of financial power and wealth, and they have the New York Stock Exchange. So anthropologists would argue that buildings are a representation of the things that we value most. Now, if you turn that into biblical terminology, uh, the Bible would say that buildings show us what we corporately worship. So as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about Orange County. What are buildings in Orange County that could potentially represent the things that we corporately care most about? And the first two things that came to mind for me was uh, Disneyland and the $2.6 billion football stadium that is being built. I got to be careful with that because my wife is a big Chargers fan and like it's blasphemy if I say anything bad about that stadium, but it's big. Uh, so what does that say to us? Is that telling us that perhaps uh, entertainment and escapism is something that we value as a culture? Then I read a stat that pointed out that the Irvine spectrum has more visitors per year than Disneyland. Uh, on top of that, Fashion Island, the Irvine Spectrum uh, are both places now of vacation destinations. So a little unknown fact about me is that I was a bellboy uh, years and years ago. Uh, I was a pretty good bellboy too. No, I was not a very good bellboy. Uh, in Laguna Beach. And so what, part of our script was to ask people why they were visiting. And uh, it was surprising how often you hear they're, they're, they're here to vacation and to shop. So people would show up, they would leave in their like, nice rental cars, and they would come back around 10 o'clock in the morning with bags of stuff from the store, and they would drop it off, and then they would go, and they would do it again. They would do that two or three different times. Some of you are like, that sounds like an amazing vacation. Here's the thing, though. The Irvine Spectrum... Uh, most visited place over Disneyland. Uh, most interesting about that though is it's still you and I, it's the locals that visit there most often. So maybe, perhaps, what this says about our culture is that what we value is consumerism. Now, consumerism is the idea that stuff will make us happy. And I recognize that nobody probably consciously makes the decision or believes that stuff is going to make us happy. But this is the way advertising sort of works for us. Uh, advertisers will tell a story, and they tell the story everywhere. We've been hearing it for years on TV, on the radio, everywhere we go. And it's the story of the good life. Like the things that we own, the things that we do, the clothing that we wear, that is what's going to make us happy. You see, very, very rarely, at least the best advertisers, they're not selling a product, they're selling a promise. A promise that if you own something, you will be happier or you will belong. So the prime example, uh, and I'm an iPhone guy, so I'm not saying anything bad about iPhones, but... The prime example is right now on the way to LA, there's like a 15-story image uh, advertising piece of a girl dancing, uh, beautiful colors, and it looks like she's having a blast. And like 3% of this entire marketing piece, off into the corner, she's holding the iPhone 10. So in that scenario, they're not selling a product so much they're selling a lifestyle, an experience. Now, why is that a problem for us? It's a challenge because for us, we see consumerism, we see products and things as, as our temples, as our places of worship, as places where we might be able to find hope and happiness. 
where we might be able to find value and identity and belonging. But if you've ever bought anything, you know, like I know, that uh, the shelf life of consumerism is short. Uh, it's not very long until we want something else that's new and better. Now, talking about kind of the big picture of, of buildings, uh, but moving that down into the, the small picture of the temples that we, uh, we tend to build for ourselves or the, the empires that we decide to create for our own selves. Um, because this is, this is the challenge that we have. Like Herod and like the Pharisees, I think all of us have a desire to create for ourselves our own empires, our own temples, and these things we hope will bring us value and worth or belonging. But they often fall short of that. Uh, think about it like this in more of a personal setting. As you interact with your friends and family members, I, I, I was thinking about this, the temples that I build in my life, for me, it's my time. You've heard me say this before. If I, if I had a long day at work or I've had a long few days, for me, I think that I have like deserved, I earn, I want my own time. want to go home and read a book and have a drink and like escape from stuff and life and responsibilities. And that's not bad. I mean, some of us want time. Having time alone is a good thing. A good book is a good thing. Um, but the challenge is when I create my time as a temple, then what I end up doing is sacrificing my wife and children to that temple. Because for me, if I had a long week at work and my kids miss me and they want to spend time with me, or my wife has had a long day at work or a long week uh, you know, doing all the amazing things that she does and she needs a break, then we have conflict, right? Then it's my empire, it's my temple versus her temple, her empire. And someone is going to be sacrificed here. Our empires tend to be destructive. They tend to destroy. The good news is that God's empire does not do that. His is the only empire, his is the only temple that promises joy and contentment for our lives. Now, some, some would argue, like, what's wrong with building my life the way I want it to be? That is the American dream. I have every right to decide to live my life my way. And you're absolutely right, you do. What Scripture is telling us, though, is that we are all, all hungry for glory, for longing and purpose. And the only glory that would truly fill us, that we can find joy and contentment, is the glory of God. C.S. Lewis said it like this, God cannot give us a happiness and a peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. So let's look back at our, our verses. Chapter 13, Jesus tells them that he's going to destroy the temple. And the guys are, are shocked by this. And then he moves into what's called prophetic text. And prophetic text is, is weird. It's hard to read. It's a challenge for every single one of us. And we're going to give it a shot. So prophetic text can be difficult because it is a literary style that we do not experience, we do not quite understand in our day and age. Um, often what happens is that we want to read the Bible in a purely literal way. And, and scripture is not intended to be always read literal. Sometimes scripture is very little literal and very direct. But often, like in prophetic text, text it's using metaphors and symbolism to get its point across. So as an example, verse 24 says this, 
But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heavens, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now, this isn't the first time we experience this type of language in the Bible. Matter of fact, we see something that's very similar in Isaiah 13. You don't have to turn there, but here's what Isaiah 13 says. And keep in mind, Isaiah in chapter 13 is predicting the fall of Babylon, in which Babylon does fall. They fall to Persia. Here's what Isaiah says about the fall of Babylon. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken from its place. Babylon falls and there is no account of the sun or the moon or the stars being affected. Jesus in Mark 13 is prophesizing the destruction of the temple. And he does this right around 33 AD. In 70 AD, about 40 years later, the temple is destroyed. It comes true. And yet, at that point in time, there is no account of the sun or the moon or the earth shaking or moving in any way, shape, or form. So what is happening? Prophets in Scripture often use these, uh, these symbolisms and metaphors to give us the feeling, the image, of the dis- uh, and the depiction of something about to happen. And so in, in the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament, we've got prophets that are using the sun and the moon and the earth to tell you that an army is coming, an army is going to win a war. And that's what we're experiencing here. Let's go to verse 26. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, more prophetic metaphors and symbolism. And it's a weird explanation. The son of man comes into the clouds, comes on the clouds. This is, this is the text for me in chapter 13 that, that I really uh, I found a home in in my studies. And I want you guys to see why this, this weird thing about the Son of Man coming on a cloud should bring you hope. Like when we read chapter 13 and you hit this verse and you see that the Son of Man is coming on a cloud, you should well up with hope. Throughout the Gospels, I'm sorry, throughout the Old Testament, a cloud represented the presence of God. Remember when Moses, when the, when the Old Testament talks about Moses leading the people through the desert, they were following a cloud, which was the presence of God. When they built the first temple and they would leave the first temple, a cloud would come in and descend upon that temple, representing the presence of God. We hear Jesus talking about coming back on a cloud. What he's telling us is that the kingdom of God is coming It's coming to hear earth, to rule and reign. Throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus talking about the kingdom of God coming. Now remember, his kingdom starts on earth, right? In Genesis, it was here, and through the fall, uh, there is a a separation. Uh, This is no longer heaven on earth. We have war and strife and anger and sickness and deceit. We have what the Bible calls sin. But God's promise, Jesus' promise, his story was that what he was about to do on the cross wasn't just salvation for individuals, it was restoration for the world, for all of us. Jesus taught that God's kingdom was coming on earth as it is in heaven. And so Jesus' picture of this thing coming down is a sign that, that it's, it's on its way. 
keeps telling us that the end goal isn't us in some other place called heaven. He's teaching us that the end goal is the restoration of all things here on earth as it is in heaven. This is hugely important for us. And it's often something that I think is missed by uh, many in the modern day church. Just recently, I was listening to a preacher, and this guy is a very famous preacher. I'm, I'm certain that some of us have his name on our books. Uh, and he was talking about social justice and caring for the environment. And he says, what, what difference does it make? It's all going to burn up anyway. And that's, man, that's just not aligned with what Jesus is teaching. That's actually more aligned with Gnosticism than, than, than what Jesus is trying to teach us here. God cares deeply about our world. He cares deeply about our culture. He cares deeply about us as individuals. He cares deeply about our friends and family members. And he is seeking to restore all things. The dwelling place of God was this temple, but now the temple is no more. It's gone. And later in the Bible, it tells us that God's new dwelling place is in his people. It's in you and I. He's left us with the Holy Spirit, and we move and act in a way that brings about love and compassion and mercy, what we are doing is laying stones for his kingdom to come back. So if you think about, again, the temple, the temple was a place where people went for mercy to seek justice and reconciliation. And what Jesus is trying to say is now he wants you to be the place where people can go for mercy and justice and reconciliation. I think oftentimes what we do is we build our own kingdoms, our own desires, and our own temples, and it causes conflict. It gets in the way of us seeking out this peace and this joy. So for us as Christians, it's important to remember that God's work is finished. The temple is no more. We don't have to work to prove ourselves we get to rest knowing that ultimately our kingdom is not what's most important. God's kingdom is coming. He, he has began a work and he has promised to finish that work. And he seeks to use us to do that. And we get to rest knowing that we don't have to prove ourselves or build ourselves up. For those of you who are not a Christian this morning, or maybe are, are asking questions and, and kind of just discovering this for the first time, I want to encourage you to to perhaps see the world a little bit differently. Maybe God's kingdom has been right in front of you and you just, you just haven't seen it. And so I, I was thinking about Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. Great movie, right? Yes. Uh, Rick, show of hands, how many people have seen Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade? I want to point out that a hand that is not up right now is Christopher Pobletti's. I don't know why, but he's never seen the Indiana Jones movies. I, it's a good thing this did not come up when he asked me to plant a church with him because I would not have moved forward. <laughs> so I love this movie. And uh, as you guys can remember, except if Chris Pobletti can't remember this because you haven't seen it, uh, the movie has got Indy and his dad, Henry. And his dad, Henry, Henry is a retired uh, archaeologist, and he's kind of a goofy guy, but he's, he's a man of faith, right? He's praying, and he believes in something otherly. 
And Indiana Jones, even though he's the hero story, uh, he comes off as the rationalist. Like he's embarrassed of his dad. He questions the things that his dad says and does. And he just, he thinks his dad is a buffoon. Uh, his dad's got a lame hat and an umbrella and a briefcase. And Indiana Jones got the cool hat. He's got the whip and he's got the gun. Like it's clear who is the hero in this story. Um, and so there's, there's almost this conflict between his dad uh, Henry and Indy in the sense that the difference between faith and rationalism. And at the end of the movie, uh, Henry is shot and he's dying. Uh, and, and as he's dying, he looks at Indy and he tells him, the only way, the only way I'm going to live is if you get the Holy Grail. Uh, and so Indy, out of desperation, maybe not even believing it, he kind of just rushes in after the Holy Grail. And at some point, he gets to this cliff uh, that he clearly can't clear. Um, and he's like, how, how, how am I going to get across this? So he's looking through his dad's journal, and he finds uh, words from his dad. And it says, and I will quote, the path of God requires a leap of faith. Indiana Jones' response is like, path of God, man, this is impossible. Nobody can jump this. He's thinking rationally. And then the scene cuts to his dad laying on the ground, and his dad's like dying, and he just whispers, you must believe, boy. You must believe. Then it goes back to Indiana Jones, and he's sitting there like his feet on the edge of this cliff. He grabs his heart, closes his eyes, and takes a step out, and he hits solid ground. He finds, so then once he hits the solid ground, the camera angle turns, and you realize that there's a bridge there. There's always been a bridge there. He just didn't see it, right? It wasn't until he took a step of faith until he started to see the world a little bit differently. Uh, and so maybe for you this morning, the call to use to see the world just a little bit differently, to see the world as, as God's kingdom coming. Uh, as you look out and you see that things are wrong, that things are distorted, uh, as you get that feeling where it's like, man, things aren't the way they should be. Um, maybe you're not realizing that God has built that bridge, that he's seeking to reconcile us, that he's seeking to come back and make all wrong things right. So my encouragement to you this morning is, is try for a minute just seeing the world a little bit differently. Mark 8.35 says this, and we're going to close with this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.